0: This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, October 24th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. A younger generation of economists has embarked on what some of them describe as a revolution in the discipline. Their ideas, which are influencing the current political debate, include new data on extreme income inequality, climate change, and continuing impediments to Hispanics, African Americans, and women in the workplace. They include this year's three winners of the Nobel Prize in Economics, Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, and Michael Kramer, who work on development economics, and Emmanuel Saez and Gabrielle Zuckman, who are best known as the architects of Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax, her signature policy proposal. In May, Warren described the plan on PBS's NewsHour. This proposal says, look, it's not punitive, it says if you built one of the great fortunes in America, this is the one-tenth of one percent, more than $50 million. That 50 millionth and first dollar, you gotta pitch in two cents, and for every dollar above that. And it says, in effect, if you built a great fortune, good for you, or inherited it, good for you. But understand, that great fortune was built in part Using employees, all of us help pay to educate. In part, getting your goods and services to market on roads and bridges, all of us help pay for. Right now, those biggest fortunes, they're putting in less than the rest of America. Let's just level that playing field a little bit. John Cassidy joins me to discuss how economists are changing the political conversation about the failures of the free market, the promised economic benefits of taxing the very rich, and whether the economy could carry Trump to re-election in 2020. John, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Dorothy.
0: So I always turn to you to explain economic trends that help us understand crucial political developments. And I was remembering this morning, back in 2006, when people were still giddy about rising real estate prices, you warned me about the dangers of the housing bubble. In 2010, you wrote a book explaining what happens when unregulated markets fail. So help us out here a little bit. This isn't the first time economists have played a role in politics, of course. Milton Friedman won the Nobel Prize in 1976, and he advised both President Reagan and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Maybe start with that revolution in economics and politics, and then we'll work our way up to the present.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, what we're seeing possibly is two counter-revolutions. The The f- Friedman-Reagan revolution was a counter-revolution against the sort of post-war settlement, Keynesianism, the Great Society, etc. And their argument was the government is stifling free enterprise. We need to strip back this government strip back regulations, unleash the magic of the market, and uh, everything will be hunky-dory. That idea became very powerful in the 80s, and both sides of the Atlantic seemed even more powerful when the um, Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc collapsed, and um, a lot of these countries tried to reconstitute themselves as free market economies in the 90s. Now, obviously, things didn't work out very well in lots of Eastern Europe. Parts of them are now back under sort of um, authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian parties. And in the West, we had the enormous great financial crisis, 2008 and 2009, followed by the Great Recession. And that really discredited the free market revolution, I think, and what we're seeing is, at least in a nascent form, a sort of counter-revolution from the left, uh, where people are reasserting some of the policies and values of the post-war era, but even taking them further, introducing, as you say, the idea of a wealth tax, which you've never really had a proper wealth tax in this country, Elizabeth Warren is also talking about breaking up some of the biggest corporations because they're turning into monopolies, which is an idea that goes back to the late 19th century and the progressive era and then Teddy Roosevelt, etc. And Bernie Sanders, of course, shouldn't let left out of the conversation. He's also got a big wealth tax and wants to... Um, Basically, get rid of the private market in health insurance by socializing the health insurance industry. So, these ideas, which you know, they're, they're not new, socialism's obviously not a new idea, social democracy, which might be a more accurate way of describing what Warren and uh, Sanders are talking about, is also not a new idea, but it's definitely having a, a reassertion now. And a lot of younger economists using new forms of data, new data sets, new techniques for analyzing them are influencing the conversation, as you said.
0: Did this wave begin essentially with Thomas Piketty, the French economist who wrote that surprise international bestseller in 2013, Capital in the 21st Century? I-
1: I think yeah, for the public it did. That's Piketty and his uh, co-authors. He, he he gets all the credit, but there's a lot of co-authors around the world started doing more detailed studies of inequality. The problem with growth overall, you look at GDP. It's a useful measurement, tells you how much output the economy as a whole is producing, but it doesn't tell you who's getting what. So their basic idea was to break up GDP into income percentiles and see how people are doing at different levels of the income distribution. And that, it turned out that the top 10%, the top 5%, especially the top 1% and 0.1% were taking an ever larger share of national income. And that looked very dramatic. You can see it on charts, etc. Everybody understands if you say, well, the top 1% of the, of the um, population used to get 8% of national income. Now they get 22% or I think they're roughly right, those figures in the U.S. Um, that's a very dramatic way of presenting the data. And I think that's why it's helped to um, promote this stuff politically and with the public at large.
0: Elizabeth Warren has The Economist's Emmanuel Sayers and Gabriel Suckman to thank it seems, for the contours of her wealth tax. Basically, she's based that on her discussions with them and, in fact, the, the the current success of her campaign. Is that right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Elizabeth Warren has her own advisors, obviously, working with her, but I think when she wanted to do a wealth tax, she spoke to Sayers and Zuckman, who are world authorities um, on the sort of distribution of income. And they came back with this plan, which is basically 2% for any fortune over $50 million and 3 percent for any fortune over a hundred million dollars and they did a study of it they claimed it would raise 2.75 trillion dollars over 10 years obviously a lot of money which elizabeth warren has then allocated to various programs including getting rid of um, student debt up to a high limit and also um, introducing a national universal daycare program it, it, it's a very uh, simple to explain plan she's very good at it she says look just two cents you know bill gates can afford two cents on the dollar and um, I think it did have a big impact on, on her campaign as it, uh, as it took off.
0: Democrats are among those who are her critics, some of her uh, competitors in the race, and they say she's wildly overpromising.
1: Well, uh, professional economists are skeptical of wealth taxes, because not all of them, but a lot of, especially American economists, are skeptical of um, wealth taxes because they have been tried in various forms around the world, and they haven't worked very well. The rich have managed to evade them. The parliaments have introduced various loopholes. And what's ended up happening is the taxes have produced a lot less revenue than their sponsors claimed. And in the end, in a lot of countries, people have said this is just too much trouble. We'll, we'll get rid of them and use other types of taxation. Now, Sayers and uh, Zuckman, what they say is this is, yes, that's true, but nobody's really tried. These taxes haven't been enforced properly. They're, part of their proposal is you have real proper irs enforcement they want to beef up the irs they want to make banks disclose people's wealth at the end of each year not just how much income they receive so the other side of the um, of the tax proposal is, is a big increase in enforcement and they they do they are they're straightforward economists they say if we don't enforce it it won't work but if we do enforce it it will
0: Back in 2016, John, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton both considered a wealth tax and then shied away from it in the end, considering it, I guess, too politically risky. And Bill Clinton, it's worth recalling, once said that the world would be better if there were more millionaires. Bernie Sanders now has jumped on the idea of the wealth tax and has said that billionaires shouldn't exist at all. His version, actually, of the wealth tax is more extreme than Warren's is.
1: Yes. I mean, Bernie did have a wealth tax of sorts in 2016, but it was basically he, what he was saying was we needed to uh, reform the estate tax, which is a form of wealth tax bill. You only get taxed when you die or your, your heirs get taxed. The difference in the, in Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax is it would hit you every year. Just as you get an income tax bill every year, you'd get a wealth tax bill. And Bernie, uh, as you say, has produced a wealth tax of his own, which is actually uh, more progressive and would raise more money than, uh, than Elizabeth Warren's. His, his kicks in at 32 million dollars, her kicks in at 50 million, and his marginal tax rates would actually rise to 8% for the uh, households. I think over 10 billion dollars in wealth, whereas um, Elizabeth Warren stopped caps at 3%. So Bernie's actually saying I can raise you know 4.3 to 4.4 trillion dollars over 10 years, which obviously would give him more money to support his um, his agenda, including his Medicare for All plan.
0: What do the more moderate Democratic candidates have to say about it?
1: They've got an alternative, um, which actually the Obama administration put forward. They recognize, I mean, all the candidates, I think, recognize the financial trends and the huge increase in inequality over the last 40 years. And they all say that we need to do something about it part of what they are saying, um, Biden and uh, lots of the others, actually, I think virtually all the others are saying that they'd reverse Trump's tax cut, which was obviously a huge giveaway to corporations and the very rich. But they've also got a, a sort of, they're basically talking about reforming the estate tax, which uh, is still on the box, but raises very little money because it's full of loopholes, including one called the step-up in basis loophole, which I won't explain here. Please don't. (laughs) But um, if you get rid of that and you enforce it properly, that can actually raise a lot of money as well. Obama proposed that in his second term, but of course, by then he didn't control Congress and it it never got through. But the moderate Democrats saying this is a more practical, less punitive, and Beto O'Rourke famously called um, Elizabeth Warren's plan punitive in the last debate. They're saying this is a a less punitive and more practical way to uh, get at some of this wealth at the top. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus.
0: You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis
1: with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are.
0: Susan Glasser,
1: this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You wrote about a lot of this yesterday, and you mentioned a new book by Heather Boushey, who is the executive director and an economist at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. As I understand it, she says that inequality of various kinds, from race and gender to geography and culture, affect economic development at both the macro and micro levels. What are some of the most surprising statistics she's gone after?
1: Well, Heather Boushey has She makes two arguments. One, that in the old days, a lot of economists argued that inequality was sort of bad. It looked bad, but it was necessary because you need some level of inequality to encourage people to take risks, to found companies, etc. These new economists, the younger generation of economists is challenging that that argument and saying equity and efficiency, equity and growth can go together. And they're basing a lot of this argument on new data sets. Uh, in her book, Heather Bushy points to, I think, one of the most interesting chapters is about the research on um, early childhood interventions. Economists used to basically measure school years, how many school years people did, and they said basically your lifetime earnings were very closely tied And how you did in life is very closely tied to how many years you stayed at school. What this new strand of research is saying is saying, yep, schooling's good. We're not saying it's not good. But actually, a lot of what happens to you later in life is determined before you even go to school. And they find that, you know, if you take an early childhood intervention at three or four, you can still trace the person doing better in life at, say, 35 or 40. That overturns a previous generation of research, which said that early childhood interventions sometimes had a short-term effect, but it sort of all washed out in the end and didn't really make that much difference. That conventional wisdom has now been overturned completely. And so you... all
0: of those conclusions about head start, the, the, the right. effects not lasting. Exactly.
1: But it's also obviously a big part of the universal pre-K debate. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie, uh, and uh, I think a couple of other candidates are are in favor of universal pre-K now.
0: I was also struck by um, the work of two other economists she cites, uh, William Darity and Derek Hamilton, who found that in Los Angeles, black and uh, Mexican households collectively hold only 1% of what white households do. And then she also cites the work of two other economists who found that... From the late 60s to the 2000s, the share of women in the top 0.1% and top 0.01% of wealth holders in the U.S. has decreased from around half to approximately one-third.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's one of the great strengths of Boucher's book. If you think about what we've seen over the last few years, the work of Piketty and Saez and uh, Zuckman, etc., it's basically looking at things overall, the top 1%, the top 5%, the top 20%, the bottom 50%. But people aren't just divided along in terms of income groups. People are also divided in along other dimensions, including race and gender and geography, etc. So what Boucher does in this book is break that down a bit. And what you see... On the race one, we've all always known that there's a racial wealth gap going all the way back to slavery. But these researchers, Darity and Hamilton, have actually looked on a local basis. They've not just done it nationally. They've broken it down city by city, various cities. And you say finding that it's, you know, one per, minorities have 1% of the wealth of the white. We've already known LA is divided, but I don't think people realize there was a 100 to 1%. One. Um, a division there. On the women's side, obviously, one of the great trends of the last 50 years is a rise in female participation in the labor force. So you'd think, well, more women rising up the corporate workforce, more women are going to get very rich. Actually, that doesn't seem to have happened. So that's a very sort of uh, striking finding. And again, shows that um, how these new data sets and this new economic research is overturning some of the assumptions that we had.
0: So getting back to general economic inequality, there are other ways to curb it. But these economists are using this data to talk about the failures of the free market and and to advocate really what what many see as radical social change. And I wondered to what extent you think economic inequality has led to the two poles of political populism we're seeing across the globe.
1: Yeah, well, I, I I think it has a, a had a huge impact. Not just inequality. Inequality is a result of other larger forces: globalization, the um, fissuring of the of the labour market, as they call it, the rise of outsourcing, offshoring, splitting up jobs, contract labour, the decline of trade unions, technology as well has played a role. You know, social democracy uh, is basically democracy to some extent is based on the idea that everybody gets a fair shake. And I think that what's happened is that sort of just common assumption has been undermined, and as you say, you're getting two sets of political reaction. You're getting a reaction on the right, where you're getting this nationalistic populism, people are blaming immigrants, and people like Donald Trump in the US, Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary, and other right-wing leaders are very clever at building up racial resentments. And then on the left, generally appealing to more educated and um, urban audiences, you've got a resurgence of democratic socialist views, whatever you'd like to call it. The idea that we can't just let these trends continue. We need to try and reverse them by going after some of the vast accumulation of wealth at the top, both in order to um, finance social programs for the people who are left out and also to sort of influence the overall distribution of income so over time the idea is that if you sort of rewrite the social contract and from my perspective the most one of the most striking things is how it's also divided along class lines because the right-wing populism seems to you know appeal to the working class around the world which you know in classic Marxism the working class is supposed to be the revolutionary proletariat they're supposed to be the source of change but the sort of underlying support of these right-wing groups tends to be white working-class people.
0: Trump has presided, inarguably thus far, over a strong economy. And in normal times, an incumbent president could win on this issue alone. At least that's the conventional wisdom. Is Trump's strong economy sustainable?
1: Well, I've always argued that Trump made a fundamental error as soon as he entered the White House in going for his tax cut straight away which actually did give a boost to the economy. We got 3% growth or slightly higher than 3% growth for a while, which was better than the 2% growth we've had for the previous 10 years. Now, the economy still looks relatively strong, but growth has slowed quite a bit. There doesn't seem to be a recession on the cards at the moment, or you can never tell, but a slowing economy going into the election year. And that's a much less uh, strong base on which to launch a political campaign than if he'd had his tax cut, you know, last year, for example, or even now. That that would have juiced the economy going into election year. So I've always thought that Trump got his timing wrong on this one.
0: Thanks so much, John. Thank you. John Cassidy, a staff writer at The New Yorker, writes a column about politics and economics for NewYorker.com and is the author of How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on NewYorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for NewYorker.com. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.